This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer. Worldwide, I'm Libby Snymer. New information about what the Allies knew about Nazi death camps and when they knew it. A British historian who unearthed the information will join us in a moment. And in a world full of distractions, have we lost the ability to be alone? An award-winning author will be here to talk about the importance of solitude. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. An update now to a story we've been telling you about on this show since February. Hamilton police have now opened a homicide investigation into the death of James Acker. The 86-year-old was beaten in the middle of the night by a fellow resident at his nursing home. Acker, who suffered from dementia, was taken to a local hospital and never recovered. This week, an autopsy found the death was connected to the assault, and the coroner's office ruled that it was a homicide. The investigation comes after police twice told the family it was not a criminal matter. An Ontario woman who is believed to be Canada's oldest living person celebrated her 112th birthday this week. Ellen Dolly Gibb was born in Winnipeg but lived in Thunder Bay for more than six decades before moving to North Bay to live with her daughter and son-in-law in 2005. Her family says she was given the nickname Dolly in her late teens because of her fashion sense. The Gerontology Research Group has validated Gibb's status as the country's oldest citizen. A 101-year-old woman continues to break records and win gold medals for her track and field exploits. Mancore of India won her 17th gold medal at the World Masters Games in Auckland, New Zealand this week. She won the 100-meter dash as well as the 200-meter event and shot put for her age category. Kaur didn't start running until she was 93. She says she intends to continue to run and hopefully improve on her records. Sir Elton John has cancelled more than a month's worth of concerts after contracting an unusual bacterial infection that left him in intensive care for two nights. The 70-year-old Zoomer legend says he became violently ill on a flight to the UK from Chile and underwent immediate treatment at a hospital. Sir Elton is expected to make a full recovery and hopes to return to the stage in England June the 3rd. In the meantime, he's cancelled shows in May in Las Vegas and California. 
the award-winning director of critically acclaimed films like Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia has died. Jonathan Demme passed away this week of complications from esophageal cancer at the age of 73. Demme started his career as a director in the 70s but didn't receive critical acclaim until the 80s. He translated that into political activism, shooting ads, for freedom of expression, as well as videos for a group called Artists United Against Apartheid. I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. For decades now, we believed the earliest that the Allies knew details about Nazi death camps was in 1944, and that war crimes charges were filed after the war. But new research by historian and author Dan Plesh is telling us otherwise. He joins us on the phone from England now. Dan Plesh, congratulations on this work. Were you aware of this archive, or did you suspect that this is what you would find? Um, I was aware of the archive, but frankly, no. I had no idea what we would discover. And so uh, what made you go into that archive? I think it was the intense restrictions imposed upon it for public access and a clear understanding that if you actually read what the Commission published back in the 1940s, that there was indeed a great deal more to be discovered And I couldn't understand why other researchers, lawyers, Holocaust scholars hadn't gone into it because the history that this commission published and the cases they published, which were actually used in the Yugoslav trials, indicated that there was a treasure trove there. Going to the heart of the matter, you found that the Allied powers knew that there was a genocide of Jews two years before most people thought? Well, actually, uh, that we found in the public domain. Um, And indeed, uh, I don't understand why, but it is public that there was an allied United Nations condemnation at the time of the Battle of Stalingrad, and the British House of Commons stood in silence commemorating the extermination of the Jews In December 1942, the BBC broadcast this in 23 languages, and every country under Nazi occupation published statements about how their Jews were being exterminated. All of this was published. Some of the material from individual countries was was lying around in public files at the UN. And we had some work a couple of years ago with the Venal Library on this. So why this still remains a surprise is a mystery to me. What was absolutely new and is absolutely new is that the Allies started to prosecute the Nazis for Auschwitz, Treblinka and all the other well-known death camps and for the deportation systems in France and elsewhere as soon as this commission got going. So in the spring of 1944, when the SS were still in charge in Europe, the Poles, the French and others were submitting charges, listing Nazis, uh, filing their charges about the death camps and the extermination system, and having it approved by the British and American governments. But this was a very familiar interagency battle going on, where Roosevelt's ambassador, who should be a hero, 
Herbert Pell was pursuing this with British judges, but the British Foreign Office and particularly the State Department really didn't want to have anything to do with it. They wouldn't even accept the files from London uh, because they were so opposed to pursuing this course of action. Do you think the fact that for a lot of people this is new information has to do with the fact that despite knowing this, uh, those powers did not do very much to try to rescue or provide sanctuary to the Jews? Yes, and I think to a degree some Holocaust scholars say that because they did so little, they shouldn't even get credit for having made a condemnation, which I think is frankly poor history and poor scholarship, if that's actually the case. Uh, But indeed, yes, I think it's very easy with hindsight, but clearly there was a strong anti-Semitic wing in the United States and Britain and within the governments, and they didn't want to do anything. Uh, and I think you could think, if you know, in hindsight, that more could have been done to assist people to escape through France, through uh, the Balkans, um, at that time. Now, does the fact that this is new, that uh, the Allies started preparing uh, and prosecuting these cases that early, how did that impact the ultimate outcome of the Nuremberg trials? Well, I think without the Commission and without Herbert Pell, uh, who made a huge fuss in Washington about this, Uh, which is a story in itself that I document, I don't think we'd have ever... It's hard to find any political actors in Washington pushing for a war crimes process. Uh, Really, Pell's uh, public fuss uh, moved um, opinion and the balance within the Roosevelt cabinet so that when President Truman came over after Roosevelt's death in the spring of '45, he really had no... Um, alternative but to move to a trial of the Nazi leadership. So I think the development of the Commission's work, I think, was decisive in producing Nuremberg, not least because, you know, the, the, the powers that be did know that if they didn't act, there were all these other charges developed by the Commission, and the Commission had its own work. But, uh, you know, it was uh, a touch and go that Nuremberg would have ever happened. And I think, as I say, Pell the role in public um, produced the political circumstances in which Truman then went to Jackson. Okay. Very interesting. Fascinating. Dan Plesch, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Is being alone such a bad thing? When we return, award-winning author Michael Harris joins us to talk about solitude. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Do you have the capacity to be alone? My next guest says it is one of life's subtlest and most important skills, and we're losing it because of our dependence on technology and the distraction that affords. Michael Harris dropped by our studios to talk about solitude, a singular life in a crowded world. Michael Harris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So what made you decide to write this book now? Well, I think it was loneliness. I mean, personal loneliness, but also uh, a kind of epidemic of loneliness that I saw around all of my friends and colleagues. Uh, despite becoming part of the most connected humans in history, we have not solved this basic problem of loneliness. And it turns out that the cure for loneliness is not more company, more connections. The cure for loneliness is solitude. It's figuring out how to be alone. <laughs> 
You really take on technology here. How much of this problem that we have is the result of technology? Well, I mean, I, I don't think technology is evil, first of all. <laughs> I think technology needs to be uh, enjoyed in, in moderation. I think people have a basic human desire for social grooming, for being connected to each other, to feeling loved, of course, for social animals. But Silicon Valley companies, our devices have hijacked that basic animal desire, much in the same way that a place like McDonald's has hijacked our basic desire for salt and sugar. So now in a, in a world of super abundance of social connections, it's up to us to curate a healthy media diet. I want to get back to this idea of grooming mm. that you talk about a lot. You say that we need to groom each other like other primates do. Sure. I mean, when I see people playing on their phones, it kind of reminds me of uh, monkeys picking lice out of each other's fur. The reason I use social grooming, that term, is because I want to remind people that no matter how polished and advanced and impressive we feel when we use these technologies, they really are tapping into something elemental about ourselves, and they are in some ways taking advantage of those basic human drives. But so when you say social grooming, do you mean yeah. building each other up, you know, giving each other a compliment? I mean, every social connection that we have, right? I mean, you and I are looking at each other right now. That's a kind of social grooming where people acknowledging each other's existence in a room. But it's also texting your mother. It's downloading YouTube videos of your friend at a concert somewhere. It's giving ratings on an Amazon listing. It's every way that we either in person or digitally, reinscribe our connections to each other. Basically, you're saying that now that it is easier to conduct this social grooming online, mm -hmm. that's had a really detrimental effect. Well, I think it keeps us from developing a rich interior life, yeah. I mean, for example, the first third of the book is devoted to uh, the way that fresh ideas come out of solitude. It's good to talk with other people to uh, share your ideas, get new ideas, but you're not going to have a real breakthrough moment while in collaboration. So there's different kinds of thinking that have to take place in order for our best mind work to actually happen. Yeah, you talk about mind wandering, and there have actually mm -hmm. been some studies which show that letting your mind wander yes. is good for you. Yeah. Now, our great artists, our great writers have always known that solitude was key to creative work, but now we have the brain scans to back that up, right? We found that when people are daydreaming, when they're staring out a window... It doesn't look like much is happening, but your mind actually activates something called the default mode network, which is a very complex and active uh, set of brain functions, which is working on problems, but hiding all that work from your ego. So you're not aware of the work that your mind is doing. This is why sometimes in the morning in the shower, you'll suddenly have an aha moment, and it seems to come out of nowhere. That's because your default mode network was doing a whole bunch of thinking without your awareness. Do you think that we have pathologized solitude? I'm thinking particularly mm. in the last few years, uh, we deal with an older demographic here. Mm. One of the things that is hammered home is the importance of keeping up your social connections and how uh. if you don't, it can bring on dementia. We do need social connections. Like Nobody's denying that. But I think, yes, I think that in an increasingly lonely world, we are running toward a dogma of connectivity. Mostly we see that in the way that we're dealing with our devices. And I would argue 
and I do argue in the book, that disconnecting paradoxically can actually bring you closer to other people. That when we live in a kind of ambient mush of kind of connected to everybody on our contact list, we're denying ourselves some of the richer connections that happen when you go away and then come back. So is the prescription, you know, that you cut back? You go yeah, cold I mean, turkey? Like I mean, what? well, I mean, when I was working on this book, I spent a month with no cell phone, no internet, and then I spent a week at a cabin in the woods. Not everybody can do that. But what everybody can do is preserve a little bit of your morning, I think is the easiest way. So when you wake up, have your shower, have your coffee, maybe even talk to somebody, but just stay off the internet for that one extra hour. You know, it, it doesn't have to be total solitude, but just a little mediation of how much crowd you invite into your life right away. And do you have any thoughts about older people interacting with younger people? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, anybody born before 1980 or so, they should transmit some of that wisdom they have to younger generations. They should talk about what life was like. They should encourage a dose of disconnection in the lives of their children and their grandchildren. Because for people who are digital natives, this is just the air that they breathe, right? Uh, they, they don't know any different. Okay. On that note, we'll wrap it up. Michael Harris, thanks so much. Thank you. That was Michael Harris, author of Solitude, A Singular Life in a Crowded World. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. A teen idol from the 1960s is celebrating his 75th birthday this week. More on Bobby Rydell right after this. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your international arts date book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. Now underway in Missouri, the Bach Society of St. Louis with a month-long festival. The festival continues until May 21st. In France, at the Chateau Lacoste in Provence, Chinese dissident artist Ai Weiwei has completed a new permanent installation that weaves between the vineyard's trees. It's named Rui Path, after the ceremonial scepter that symbolizes power and good fortune in Chinese history. Dancer and actor Mikhail Baryshnikov is bringing his one-man show, Brodsky Baryshnikov, to London's Apollo Theater this coming week. The show is based on the poems of Nobel laureate Joseph Brodsky, who Baryshnikov met and worked with in New York City. It's performed in Russian with English surtitles and runs May 3rd to the 6th. And when in New York, take time to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Argentinian sculptor Adrian Villarojas has transformed the roof garden into a fantasy banquet scene overlooking the Manhattan skyline. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. Bobby Rydell was born April 26, 1942, in Philadelphia. At the age of eight, Rydell, then Robert Ridelli, won a contest on the television series Paul Whiteman's TV Teen Club and became a member of the regular cast. After releasing a number of singles without much success, he changed his name to Bobby Rydell and signed on with Cameo Records, releasing his first hit, Kissin' Time, in 1959. 
It wasn't until the 60s, however, that Rydell came into his own with 34 songs that reached the Billboard Top 100, including Wild One, Sway, and Forget Him. Rydell also tried his hand at acting, appearing in the 1963 movie version of Bye Bye Birdie, starring alongside Dick Van Dyke and Anne-Margaret. He continued singing into the late 60s and 70s, but never received as much critical success as he had in the early 60s. Let's hear his biggest hit now, Bobby Rydell's Wild One. That was Bobby Rydell with Wild One. He turned 75 this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Dave Woodard, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.